0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. The Duke, his aged grandsire, bore the shame till he could bear no more. He rallied his declining powers, summoned the youth to Brackley Towers, and bitterly addressed him thus. Sir, you have disappointed us. We had intended you to be the next Prime Minister but three. The stocks were sold, the press was squared, the middle class was quite prepared. But as it is, oh, my language fails. Go out and govern New South Wales. That was Hilaire Belloc, um, and that's the fate of Lord Lundy. In one of his Belloc's cautionary tales, his poems published in 1907. And of course, governing New South Wales, which is the fate that awaits Lord Lundy, Tom, that's a fate worse than death for Edwardian Edwardian Britain. Especially being lined up to become prime minister. Exactly. Uh, Although by
1: 1907, um, Australia had become federated. So
0: prime ministers were being elected to run Australia. Yes, we have been thinking a great deal about Australian prime ministers in the last few hours. <laughs> Speak for <laughs> yourself, days. Yeah. I've spent days on Australian prime ministers, prompted
1: by the fact that by the time you listen to this, the Australian general election will have been held. Uh, elections to the House of Representatives, which is for British listeners, the equivalent of the House of Commons and the Senate, which is the Australian equivalent of the uh, of the House of Lords. Um, and uh, you will know who has won um by this attention point, where, i know excitement so, on the I streets know. of britain whether whether it's the uh the liberals who are confusingly for again for british listeners basically that the tories or conservatives under scott morrison or uh labor which is labor under <laughs> anthony albanese i think i've pronounced that right yeah um and uh, so you'll probably know and, and i think labor are mildly the favorites aren't they
0: they're, they're, um, they're marching ahead as at the time of, that we are recording this. They're they're just leading the opinion polls, aren't they? And and the streets of Chippy North and Tom. <laughs> Talking of little else, yeah, little else exactly. Well, so, so so this follows in the
1: wake of um, episodes that we've done uh, on German chancellors, prompted by the German elections last year, and yeah. uh, French presidents, prompted by the, the French presidential elections, and what's interesting is that. I, I would say that um, to the British and Dominic, we're not apologising for being British, are we? No, I mean, we are. We're being Never. upfront about that to yeah. our many Australian listeners. Um, that Australia seem, you know, Australians seem like kin, yeah, in so many ways. But we're much politically much closer. We seem much closer to to France and and Germany. We have, you know, Merkel and uh, Schultz and uh, Macron. Our political figures in, in our consciousness in a way that by and large Australian prime ministers
0: have not been. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because everybody always thinks that we don't know enough about Europe and we're not sufficiently kind of plugged into Europe and that all we care about is the Anglosphere and Anglo Saxon carryings on. But actually, that's only truly of America. We don't, I mean, most of these names, I'll be completely honest, until we started thinking about doing this podcast and speaking as somebody who writes books about 20th century Britain, I actually. This is a terrible confession, but I hadn't heard of some of these Australian prime ministers. And it really reminds me of – so some listeners may remember that we had a guy called Andrew Preston. We've had him a couple of times on the show, professor at Cambridge, um, a Canadian, author of books about the Vietnam War and so on. And I can remember years ago him telling me that um, a Canadian prime minister had come to London. A former Canadian prime minister had come to the seminar, and Andrew was very excited, and he'd gone to this seminar – And it was patently obvious to him that nobody knew who this man was, even when he introduced himself. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, oh, that's terrible. People are so ignorant. Who was he? And Andrew said, well, he was was Joe Clark. And I'd never heard of Joe Clark. I wouldn't have recognized him in a million – I still wouldn't recognize him if he walked down the street. And I think it's a very interesting lacuna in Britain's sort of political consciousness that the prime ministers, or the politics more generally, of our sort of Commonwealth – as you say, our Commonwealth kin – are completely unknown in this country.
1: So Australians or indeed Canadians listening to this may assume that this is kind of pommy snobbery and superiority as as yeah. evinced by the Heller-Bellock with which we wit- exactly. began this episode. Yeah. But I, th- I think that there's a much more favourable explanation for it, which is that it reflects incredibly well on the stability uh, and the sanity of Australian politics. Because basically, you know, if if your if your leaders are not intruding themselves on foreign consciousness it generally implies that they're doing a good job and i think that um when you look at uh the evolution of australia from um you know well fr- from you know its founding as a penal colony to the process where it becomes federated to to now it's yeah. it's an incredibly uplifting story actually i mean it pains me as
0: a <laughs> as a cricket fan,
1: as an English cricket fan, to admit this, and I remember the first time I went to Australia, I so wanted to hate it, and it was I, I loved it so much. Um, and it annoys me to have to admit that Australia is a much better run. It seems a much happier.
0: Well, Australian, um, much listen- a country than Britain. Australian listeners may find this. Um- Bizarre, because, of course, their recent political history, they change prime minister about once every 18 months, and they're always stabbing each other in the back, as we will see when we get to the later stages. But it's true. I think a lot of the – if you look beneath the headlines, the story of Australia, um, of course, it does have dark chapters. But the political story of Australia in the 20th century and early 21st is actually, you know, compared with the stories of, I don't know, France, Germany, Britain, the United States, it's pretty untroubled, isn't it? I mean there are scandals. Well, there are there, things there, that go wrong. Yeah. There, so are, yeah, there, there, there are there are, are problems. But but it's not it's actually, as you say, it's a fairly it's it's a fairly sort of benevolent story. Of course, not completely benevolent, I know, but by comparison. Yeah, so so um
1: prime ministers lose their trousers. <laughs> um they one of them drowns. Um so yeah. there are various kind of scrapes and escapades, but it's absolutely
0: not on the level of the kind of traumas, say that most European countries went through. In exactly, exactly. So let's talk a bit, Tom, about, um, before we get into, because we're, we're really going to focus on the post-war, on the wartime and then post-war yeah. prime ministers, aren't we? But we should say something, because Australian polit- politics is terra incognita for so many of our British listeners, we should say something, shouldn't we, about the sort of the political culture, where it all comes from and so on? Because in some ways it's very British, um, yeah, and in some ways it isn't. Well so the one
1: prime minister the early prime minister that I know about is actually the first prime minister is a guy called Edmund Barton. Yeah. Uh, and the reason that I know about him is because he was embroiled in a very early cricket scandal. Right. So <laughs> in um in, in 1879 he umpired uh in a match that was notorious for the as as the great Sydney riot. Um and uh a match was being played at the ground that will is now the Sydney Cricket Ground. Um and it was uh, New South Wales yep. against an English touring team led by an aristocrat, which just makes it perfect, you know, for the whole pommy Aussie dynamic. It's so Lord Harris, Harris. Yeah. yes. Uh, and the, um, the English were, you know, this was l- long ago. So back in those days, the English did well in Australia. And they, w- they, w- they were winning the match. And um, one of the two umpires gave out the best Australian batsman, Billy Murdoch. Uh, and there was a riot and there was a pitch invasion um and people wondered was this because they were trying to disrupt the match because um gambling syndicates were behind it hmm. or was it an expression of interstate rivalry because the umpire who'd given the new south wales batsman out was from victoria or w- what was going on but barton as the other umpire played a key role in diffusing the whole kind of bust up and, and so it's kind of what did, he, what did he do well he he um he essentially said that uh you know the umpire's ruling was final uh he reminded um everybody about that you know the essence of the you know the laws of fair cricket play. have to be upheld, yeah. fair play, all that yeah. kind of stuff. But he did it in a very sensitive way, um, and Great so it won fun. him friends uh, all around. Uh, and I'm not saying that this is what enabled him to become first prime minister. <laughs> and the next thing he knew, he was prime yeah, minister. Yeah. <laughs> but I, 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 you know, I think I think it helped. Um, and so he, he was he was he was very keen on Australia becoming a country. So he had this this phrase: a nation for
0: a continent, a continent for a nation. Yes. So, uh, so before that, Australia had been a series of colonies, hadn't it? New South Wales, Victoria, and so on, um, effectively administered by the Colonial Office. Yeah, and and the the pressure for, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about some of the attributes of Australian political culture, but the pressure basically comes because they think they'll be stronger if they're fed, if they're if they're united in one federation. They say we have the same population now that the United States did when it became a, a nation, um, but also. They're anxious, aren't they, about um, China and about yes. that that threat? Actually, was really interesting researching this. How that, th- as it that perceived threat, has run right through Australian political history from the late nineteenth century yeah. to the present. This sort of sense of living next door to this giant, which one day will awake. So, one
1: of the one of the um, reasons why federation is people in Australia vote in favour of the federation. Is that um, British strategists have warned that unless they do, Australia is likely to be invaded by China. So yeah. even then, there is kind of anxiety about this lurking, you know, this giant that's kind of. I can't, of I can't help the thinking that's pre-
0: that was pretty rich, given that actually <laughs> <laughs> that you know the Boxer Rebellion was happening in China and Western yeah. powers were piling in. And- well,
1: hypocrisy is, of course, the great yeah. British quality. Um, so, so that of, obviously
0: is a theme. And obviously, the relationship with Britain is a theme, right? From yeah, the because that's so. In in, the, in sort of the Victorian era, my image of Australia was always, you know, it's it's basically there's Mister Pecksniff. Is it Mister Pecksniff? No, not Mister Pecksniff. Who's the fellow who's always running out of money? Mister um, Mr. Macorber. Mister Macorber. There's Mister 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 There's Magwitch. Yeah. There's assorted yeah. other variations on that theme. So basically, impecunious people, convicts, and so on, people building new lives, sheep farmers, but it's very British. But of course. There, there is a cleavage right there in Australian political culture that's there from the beginning to now. And it's between people who see themselves very much as the heirs of Britain and are more British than the British in some ways. And those who, who resent that. So particularly originally Irish, from, yeah, Irish Catholic convicts. and yeah. So there's a religious dimension there as well between
1: Protestants and Catholics, between yeah. um, Anglos and Irish um Between basically people who who could claim descent from the prison warders and people who could claim descent from the convicts. So I think that that is a kind of tension that's always been. It's fascinating
0: because that, I think, in itself is very British because it mirrors what I think and what some historians, other historians think, is one of the great sort of unspoken cleavages in in British political life, which is between the people who, the Church of England, people whose ancestors might have been in the Church of England and those who are dissenters. Or yeah. Catholics or whatever, who'd be more likely to be drawn to non Tory parties. Yeah. And I think you can definitely see elements of that culturally yeah. in Australian politics. Yeah, and absolutely. Yes. I mean it's because I think the um you know,
1: the, the liberal and labour divide in Australia does map quite closely onto the Tory Labour divide here in Britain. Yeah. Um, and once you
0: start looking at their biographies and where they went, you know, what kind of schools they went to, what kind of household they were raised yeah. in, basically where they went to church yeah. of Australian prime ministers, you can often predict what party they'll be in. Not always, uh, well, though, as we'll find no, out. No, not always, not always. But, not but, always. Um, but uh, yeah, I, but the other thing that I know, because I, I've got your notes in front of me, Tom, because of your extraordinary Australian enthusiasm, you've produced these colossal notes. Mate um, uh, mateship. So the masculinity of Australian politics—that's really interesting, isn't it? That's, so the,
1: for, yes. So the um, in the uh, in the wake of the ball tampering scandal that afflicted the Australian cricket team, yeah, a few years ago, who was the fellow who cried? uh steve smith yes the australian captain when he resigned um there was a kind of you know we need new brooms we're going to set things up and the the phrase that um the australian cricket team promoted was elite mateship Elite Elite mateship. that's kind of rubbish that you'd come out with (laughs) well we obviously everybody (laughs) in our (laughs) cricket team immediately said we've got to have elite mateship but that idea of mateship it's been argued by cultural historians of australia is reflective of the fact that Australia, to begin with, was a very tough environment.
0: So the you know,
1: particularly society, if you're a, conv- you a convict or you're on know, the chain gang or if you were going out, if you're a gold prospector or whatever, it was tough. And so you you needed to depend on one another. And yeah. so therefore there is a much more um, egalitarian strain within a, within Australian um, societal relationships and working environment than you would get, say, in Britain.
0: Yeah, I um, think that's definitely true, isn't it? I mean, there's also that sense of throwing off the hierarchies yeah, and the sort of stuffiness of the old world, isn't it? Yeah, and
1: so uh, Australia is—you um, know—even in—even um, when Hilaire Belloc is writing that kind of sneery poem about yeah. know, the Lord going off to go on New, New South Wales, it's already by even by today's standards uh, strikingly progressive. So, yeah. uh, votes for women—I brought um, yes, uh, uh, in nineteen oh two, and and some states had had that—you know—even before that. Um, You've got free and compulsory education for all children is an idea that is very, very firmly held. So that in Victoria, that dates back to 1872. Um, You've got old age pensions, um, invalidity pensions brought in in 1908, minimum wage brought in in 1907. Um, And so all of this, I think, combines to give Australia an incredibly high standard of living, which, of course, in in turn makes it appealing to to, to people in Britain, perhaps, who... yeah. You know, you know look- Tom.
0: If there was such a thing as the Australian Historical Tourist Board,
1: they could not find <laughs> well,
0: a more enthusiastic advocate. Well, well,
1: except that there are downsides to this tradition of mateship. Yeah, one of which is that it's quite sexist. Yeah, so there's quite a sexist strain, I think. In you know, not to say that
0: there wasn't in Britain. Well, as well we shall be. But, we will be but, coming but, to but, the the prime premiership of Julia Gillard. Yes. later in the in the podcast, won't we?
1: Um, and also, I think it's led to a pretty overtly racist tradition. For much mm-hmm. of the 20th century which, which where Australian you know both on labor as well as on on the on the right have been absolutely upfront about saying that Australia should be white so the well, white only policy
0: well, it's a white Australia policy wasn't it wasn't that what they called it
1: yeah yeah uh, and so that's their right pretty much from the beginning so in nineteen oh one, which is the year of of federation you have the immigration restriction act and then this other one this quarantine act which basically so you come in you're you're coming from a country outside Europe and you have to if if the if the uh, the immigration official says you've got to, you know give me 50 Euro- words in a european language and the immigration official can choose the european language
0: that's ridiculous
1: that's so, <laughs> laughable so you know you get people from malaya or something yeah. being asked to give 50 words in italian in or in portuguese, portuguese oh, or
0: something but any 50 words can they, can the officer choose the 50
1: words i think <laughs> I, mean, so, I think so i mean maybe australian listeners could clarify if i've got that wrong but i think that's the case and so effectively it serves as a, a you know way of keeping non-europeans out um yeah. and also of course it's expressive of this sense that um that asia in particular is pestiferous that it's a breeding ground for disease and that's quite again quite a strong tradition that runs throughout certainly the first half of the, the 20th century in australia and into the the post war years so um so that's that's perhaps an aspect that is is less noble and then of course um there is the relationship of the 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 white settlers with the indigenous people of Australia. Yeah. The
0: Aborigines, as as Um, many people would know.
1: So uh, that also is, you know, how white Australia relates to them, um, whether they, you know, policies that are introduced to try and integrate Aborigines into white society, often attempts to do that generate further injustices how people that how, how the, the australian government and society then respond to that so that's
0: another theme so i think these are all yeah well obviously the confiscation of children is the most famous yeah and controversial yeah. example isn't it so these themes are all running through the irish versus english um egalitarianism the mateship the uh, racism all of this sort of stuff so tom let's fast forward now Nineteen oh one Federation, the event that many people will immediately think of as one of the building blocks of modern Australian sort of a distinctive Australian identity, which is World War One and Gallipoli in particular. Yeah. Um so where do you think all that fits in? Well, so Gallipoli is
1: you know, it's it, it's enshrined in Australian folklore as um lions led by donkeys, and in this case the donkeys are British and the lions are Australian you know, that's very
0: unfair, actually, because more yeah.
1: British and Irish died at Gallipoli I, than Australians. I'm saying that that is the yeah that that that's the sense that you have in Australia. So Steve War, the most fearsome of all uh,
0: recent Australian cricket captains, Steve War, you. <laughs> Literally, well, W A U G A. Yeah, I know his name. I know Steve War. I just, I thought you were going to mention some, you know, top historian at the University of Melbourne no, or something. No,
1: Steve Waugh, when he brought the Australian team over, would take them to Gallipoli before coming to England to to steal them for the fight. Oh my God. Stick it to the palms. Yeah. Um, so, so that's that's a kind of downside. But I, I think it's important to say that the First World War did also cement um, Anglo-Australian relations. Uh, there was a feeling that it had been a shared sacrifice. Yes. Um, so, so Billy Hughes, who was the you know the the Lloyd George of Australia, Prime Minister during the the, the First World War, um, famously said that Australia is as much a part of England as Middlesex. So, so a, a, again, it's not. You know, there are there, there's this split, the the tendency to regard Britain with suspicion, or the, the the tendency to see that you know we're we're kind of kin. Yes. Going back, so you've got that, and then of course the other famous episode is Bodyline
0: where oh yeah we talked you know, about the, that in a previous podcast didn't we but for again that, people who don't remember that's the cricket tour in was it 1930 you know three isn't it um so douglas jardine is the captain um larwood is the bowler they're seen as dreadful uh british um destroying sporting play and all this kind of thing by bowling too hard at these poor um wilting Australian batsman. That's about right, isn't it, Tom? That's a very it, fair it, it, description of that. <laughs> I think That's a
1: very fair description. But also the other thing about it, of course, is that when, um, when the Australians complain to to the English management um, about what's going on, namely that there's kind of physical intimidation with the cricket ball going on on the cricket pitch, um, they, they're doing so in very English terms. They're saying, you know, this isn't cricket. This is yeah. not, This is not how you play the game. So again, there is that kind of tension. And that, of course, then takes us into the Second World War which, yes, is really which is really kind of
0: the great dividing line. in It in, is the great dividing line. Isn't it. So let's start with the prime minister who, um, who is most associated, I suppose, with the the Second World War, certainly the beginning of the Second World War, and that is Robert Gordon Menzies. So he's from rural Victoria, isn't he? He's obsessed with cricket. Surprise, surprise. Um, am I right in thinking I see from the notes he's the first prime minister to have two Australian parents? So in other words, native-born Australians rather than immigrants. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, but he's Brit- he's very British, isn't he? He loves the royal family and British traditions. And- British to the bootstraps was his famous right. self-description. And his name, interestingly, so it's obviously a Scottish surname, which Scots will, will tell you is pronounced Mingus. And he would have told you that himself, I think, wouldn't he? Well, he yes,
1: yes, he did. And so one of his nicknames was Ming, Ming the Merciless.
0: Right. In but everybody, because I watched a newsreel of him arriving in, um, a Pathé newsreel of him making one of his trips to Britain during the Second World War. And he's very clearly Menzies. Yes, in, so nobody picked up room. on that, but it was an affectation that he would have liked to see develop. But um, there are two things about him that are notable as a young man, Tom. One of them, very disappointing for you, although he liked cricket, he was very bad at sport himself. Well, so, I a lot so of fellow feeling there. So there's that, but then more importantly, his middle name, he is named after very much a friend of the rest of his history,
2: General Gordon. Gordon. Is he yeah. really
0: named after General Gordon? or Is it just a coincidence? Yeah, he is. Are we, are we just making that up? No, he really was. Well, wow, that's splendid. He's a big fan of Aussie rules, which is obviously because that's in Victoria, isn't it? Aussie rules. That's Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. um, So he goes into the, he becomes a politician in the United Australia party, which is the ancestor of the liberal party. And um, he, 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 just as well for him, he resigned just before the Second World War in protest at the lack of defence spending, which obviously is good for him. It means he's a bit of Anthony Eden because he can then look like, you know, a sort of idol. Yes. Although
1: he's he is ha- hamstrung as a war leader because he
0: had not volunteered for overseas service in the First World War. That's right. And he said, I never, people throw mud at me everywhere I go. I, I'm trudging through a trench of mud, he said, yeah. or something. Words to yeah. that effect. Yeah. A slightly ill-chosen image, well, you but, might think. But...
1: <laughs> yes. yeah not the most diplomatic
0: um
1: but that was because he he was one of three brothers and the other two had gone um, yes that's right and so he yeah. got the
0: he got the long straw i guess on that yeah he did <laughs> so he becomes um prime minister at night end of nineteen towards the end of 1939 um and he's sort of – he's very popular in Britain, isn't he? At one point, people are talking about him as a replacement for Churchill. I, I, well, I think I, Menzies is himself. Yeah, I think very <laughs> implausibly. <laughs> yeah. Very implausibly. Yeah. There were always these sort of claims that, oh, some Commonwealth prime minister – because I think people sort of fantasized that a Commonwealth prime minister would be untouched yeah. by the partisanship of the House of Commons. Smuts was also often – Smuts, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, he throws Australia wholeheartedly into the Second World War, doesn't he? And then – if sort of for two years so just before pearl harbor he's kicked out for, for well seems- but but it's
1: it's i think i think what's interesting is is and again this is a theme that runs particularly through the narrative of the, of the second world war is that one of the reasons he goes to britain is is not just to <laughs> maybe become prime minister of britain but also more germanely to try and ensure that uh, the, the british high command don't forget the pacific theater because yeah. they're twitchy about that about japan um, obviously about yeah. japan uh kind of very very kind of sensitive to it so i think that but i think there is also a kind of crucial thing that uh, menzies is very into the idea of the anglosphere and the commonwealth of english-speaking nations and all that kind of stuff and there's a um, famous account of him going to ottawa um and uh he's he's staying with the um uh with the governor general there and he stays up
0: late showing him his travel snaps Oh, that's nice. And the governor General's desperate to go to bed. That's nice. That's like uh, well, <laughs> Churchill behaved very badly at the same time with Roosevelt staying up late, drinking his brandy, and talking about great battles of history. So maybe they Menzies and Churchill should just cut out the middleman and yeah, stayed up late together. Done. Yeah, maybe yeah. they should have done. Anyway, so he but 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 he's obviously away for
1: for quite a while. I mean, over a year. And by the time he gets back to Australia, um, essentially, you know, things have been happening there, and he gets politically assassinated.
0: He does, um, doesn't he? They don't want. He wants to go again, doesn't he? he wants to go on another trip. And, well, he um, wants to go back, I think,
1: and try and become prime. It's it's a it, the the story is again that he wants to go back to become prime minister of Britain, and he needs he needs the permission of of Labour to do that. Uh, he won't countenance going into coalition with Labour, uh, and so that this is what ends up bringing him
0: down. Yeah, and he. Uh, he say? I've been done. I'll lie down and bleed a while. Yeah. Now, actually, I could have done that in an Australian accent, but it would have been wrong because I've listened to him talking and he's not very Australian in his. He's quite British to the bootstraps in his speech, as actually, interestingly, FDR was. So if you listen to FDR's addresses, he's much less American and more British. I mean, he was a very patrician figure in his intonation. And it's interesting that Australians at this point mm. don't sound like they don't sound like Paul Hogan. No. Well so I think men's it's definitely not <laughs> no, definitely not. So he 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 they get rid of him and Arthur Fadden. So Australia specializes in these interim caretaker prime ministers, does not it? Yeah. Who are almost always from some p- p- the country party or, or No, I think he's I think Arthur Fadden is the only prime minister from the the country party. Aren't they? What are the other the others are from small parties often though, aren't they? No, I think anyway, they're anyway, all, listen, they're all, all, get anyway. we'll get into them. So Arthur Fadden, uh interesting fact about him is he was once part of a blackface minstrel troupe. Yeah, um, so he's the Justin Trudeau. He's the oh, Trudeau um, of Australian <laughs>
1: politics. Yeah. Oh, it's so simple. I think we should take a break at this point. Um, and when we come back, we should look at uh, the great Australian war leader. Tom, we've done. We've done one. We've done one prime minister in all this time. <laughs> That's it's shocking, fine. That's fine. It's fine. It's fine. by our
0: standards. So uh,
1: let's come back when we we will look at the great Australian war leader John Curtin.
0: Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about Australia's titanic political leaders. And Tom, we're about to get into a, a man who you just, just described as Australia's great war leader, John Curtin. And I'm going to guess that most of our British listeners will never have heard of John Curtin, which is a very good example, actually, of the way that Australian politics is occluded from the British imagination. Because, well, as you say, John Curtin is a massive figure in Australian history. Um, and in Civilization Six, if anyone's played that, He's the leader of Australia, isn't he? Yeah, in civilization. So, he's the face of Australia. Yeah, against Genghis Khan or Augustus Caesar. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. But that speaks well of Australia that they don't have a blood-soaked dictator. It think.
1: absolutely does. Yes, I, I, and that's yeah, absolutely does. So he is—he's uh, Labor. Yes, and so therefore, almost inevitably, um, his parents are from Ireland yeah, from and he's Cor- Catholic. Catholic.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so we're very, very well, are. my in-laws. Yeah. Um, and he's cross-eyed, which wouldn't. Not that they've got anything against cross-eyed <laughs> people, but it's just they wouldn't be especially impressed, I think. Because didn't mm. that didn't that sort of play a part in his, I don't know, self-image or something? Yeah, I think he was very self-conscious about it. Yes, uh, but Tom, I see in your notes you've written the dread words "solid batsman," <laughs> <laughs> and he was absolute obsessive
1: on uh, cricket stats. Yeah. Which I think, you know, if you're kind of
0: having to work out um, logistics, it's probably good training. It's interesting how cricket plays such a massive part in Australian life compared with in Britain, doesn't it? You well, must it's the only, on it's with, the only national sport in Australia. Well, you must look on this with a real sense of yearning because I do. this would not be true of Ted Heath or Margaret Thatcher. No. Or I mean John Major admittedly, yes. But but not um but but not most of them. But most of these guys are absolutely obsessed with cricket. I think,
1: well, it's not just cricket. Also, I, I mean, all kinds of sport. I think sport has a really central role in
0: Australia. Yeah. Right. Let's talk about John Curtin. Yeah. So he's a trade unionist. And actually, he's very much on the left of the union movement as a, as a young man, isn't he? He's a, I mean, he's practically a Marxist. Pretty much a Marxist as a young man. Yeah. And he's uh, anti-imperial. Uh,
1: he's uh, anti-war. So um, very much from that kind of tradition
0: um it's Australian uh, Marxist tradition that's not one that you often, uh, <laughs> you often Yeah but hear but about. But, but, it, but it is you know so well,
1: Australia Australia before say the um before the Russian revolution is probably the most left wing country Well that's what's so interesting about is. Australia
0: but I, this is precisely the thing though you don't hear a lot about the Australian Marxist tradition but Australia its political culture it, which we would perceive I think as outsiders as being very macho and all about barbecues and stuff <laughs> is actually clearly, to my mind, more left-wing than France's political culture, which is perceived in Britain as much more left-wing. But it's a masculine left-wing culture. Yeah, well, it is. So it is, as we will explore. Um, so anyway, he has he voted against conscription in World War One, hadn't he? He'd um, he'd moved to Perth in Western Australia, and he'd become more moderate in the interwar years. John Curtin, and uh, he becomes so he's the prime minister who basically has to deal with Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And with the, uh, and and with with the Singapore. effects of that. And with the, the this colossal kind of Japanese um, onslaught through Southeast Asia.
1: Yeah. And he
0: makes this absolutely landmark declaration at the end of December nineteen forty one that really probably you could argue is one of the two or three great turning points in Australian in Australia's entire history. Um, without any inhibitions of any kind, I make it quite clear that Australia looks to America free of any pangs as to our traditional links or kinship with the United Kingdom. So, I mean, you know, it's right there explicit. We're now looking to the Americans and yeah. And and that's partly because he thinks the British have sold them out. Yes. I think,
1: I think he, well, I think he quite correctly recognizes that for Britain, the focus is on defending the British isles, British homeland. Um, And that therefore, um, Say Singapore is not as strongly defended as it might be, uh, which is why the fall of Singapore, which follows in the wake of Pearl Harbor, is is seen as such a you know it's so, it's so calamitous for Anglo Australian relations because yeah. it's it's a humiliation for Britain, but it's a kind of you know it's it's an existential crisis for Australians, and so the mud flinging over that is is pretty you know it's pretty bad.
0: So the British- because as with Gallipoli, they sort of say oh, the British officers are just of feckless wasters. Who are yeah, they're, they're incompetent and, and useless. And gin and tonics, yeah, with their stupid, straggly moustaches and their yeah. baggy short.
1: Yes, exactly. That they're, they're, they're useless.
0: And the British um, have an absolutely an absolutely <laughs> splendidly scathing line about the Australians. I have to say, the Australians were known as daffodils, beautiful to look at, but yellow all through. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's not helpful, is it? For, no, it's not very for preserving helpful for Anglo-Australian. No. no. Uh, and also what's not helpful is that
1: um, in the face of this disaster, Churchill pulls British troops and, and the Navy back to the two key kind of blocks uh, of the empire, India and Australia. But again, he makes it perfectly clear that India is
0: more important than Australia. Yeah, the Australians are not happy, unsurprisingly, which is why they turn to the United States and why I think you get from this point onwards – I mean, this is the sort of um, the thread that leads all the way through to Paul Keating in the 1990s, because he yeah. actually refers to this, doesn't he? He does.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's still, it, it, it's still a kind of itch to to scratch in the 1990s. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it becomes all the more kind of sensitive because Australia actually comes under attack. So the Japanese bombed Darwin. Yeah. Um, in, uh, I think it's kind of early 1942. And then notoriously there's a, a Japanese submarine makes its way into Sydney Harbour and sinks a couple of ships. So Australians feel really, really vulnerable about this. Yeah, um, And you can see why they absolutely just go, okay, wait, you know, Britain's
0: useless. Let's, let's sign up to America. Although interestingly, um, John Curtin himself never, I mean, he never sort of disavows the link with Britain because he says at one point about the white Australia policy, um, that you know, we we are uh, we are the descendants of people who came here to quote to establish in the South Seas an outpost of the British race, and he's absolutely unap- unapologetic mm-hmm. about the yeah. About I, think, the I, mean, of- I mean, I don't think there's a contradiction there. I I, I I think he feels that Britain, in a
1: way, has betrayed a trust, mm-hmm. or or perhaps is simply impotent to uphold that trust. Yeah. Whereas whereas America is the face of the future, you know vast numbers of, of of course of conscripts so this is also an issue is that Curtin is a, uh, you know had originally made his name voting against conscription um and i think he increasingly comes to feel that as australia fills up with american conscripts who are defending australia it's simply unconscionable for australia not to have an element of conscription yeah. themselves and so um yes yeah, so, so i he, he brings in a law that basically um Conscription is introduced and that they can be posted outside the limits of Australia, if that involves defending
0: Australia. Well, he's clearly a man of iron principle, Tom, because he dies in um, July 1945, doesn't he? Just at the point the war is being won. And although he is of Irish Catholic parentage, he has turned his back on the um, Catholic Church. And, And not just turned his back, he's stormed out and slammed the door very firmly shut. Yeah. Because they bring him a Catholic priest, don't they, as he's dying. And he doesn't want to know, doesn't want to know him. Go away, that's, mate. Yeah. Is that, is that what he said? <laughs> Something like that, I imagine. Um, but what's extraordinary is he wouldn't go, he would never set foot in a Catholic church, not even when his friends were getting married. He wouldn't yeah, but go that's, But that's a kind of, that's a very Catholic form. It's of very it, Catholic, Catholic behavior, system, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it is. Anyway, it is. You know, yeah. Yeah. I think still so anyway, Catholic he is succeeded by a man who, now this is a confession that, you know, some people will think absolutely damning. That he, a man who I, I learn from online historical rankings of Australian prime ministers of Australia, I and mean, from research in the Bodleian historians and political scientists, I learned by people in the know is regarded as one of Australia's absolute greatest prime ministers. And until about four hours ago, I don't think I'd ever heard of him. <laughs> but Dominic, that is—it's—it's it's so interesting because, of course, he is in
1: a—I mean, in a way, he's the Clement Attlee.
0: He is of Australia. We should tell I, people okay. who he is because they won't know. Okay, so this is Ben Ben Chifley. Ben Chifley, a name to conjure with. Who, um,
1: again, very, um, uh, very like curtain is uh, of Irish descent. Yeah, he's from uh, New South Wales, isn't he? He's a Labor Party, and he is uh, an engine driver.
0: And again, yeah. I just think it reflects tremendously well on Australia that you know an engine driver can.
1: can we had engine drivers in
0: Britain. Jimmy Thomas in the 1930s. Yeah, they didn't become prime minister. No, he didn't. You no, know, our prime I really ministers didn't know went to Eaton. Driver. Um, uh, they did. So-
1: <laughs> So, um, so, so it's on that he gets involved in the unions and unions are very, very strong in Australia. Yeah. Um, and, um, he kind of enters, he's through the 30s, he's, um, uh, early 30s, he's Minister of Defence and he loses his seat, has a really bad Great Depression. Um, at one point, you know, he's dependent on his wife's earnings. Um, so has it, has it really bad. 1940 gets back into Parliament. By the, the following year, he's become the Treasurer, so Chancellor of the Exchequer equivalent, Finance Minister for, for Curtin. Um, and succeeds Curtin, and as I say, is basically the the, the Clement
0: Attlee of Australia. I mean, he's very much about sort of fiscal discipline controls. Um, he's a, he's a sort of financial wizard, isn't he? Running the Australian economy, um, but he's also got the austerity of an Attlee, and sort of he's got that sort of that that very mid century sort of Labor Party tradition, but but austere, patriotic yeah. kind of man yeah. i mean i think the thing that sums him up is this thing he's about um being his dinner with the king george yeah. The Sixth. yeah um so the king invites him to dinner doesn't he tom and uh he can't go because he's got no evening dress but yeah. what happens the king says that he'll wear
1: a lounge suit and so, so chifley and the king lounges. go and uh, nobody else knows this so the king and chifley are the only
0: two in lounge suits i think that's a story that reflects absolutely splendidly on george the Sixth. <laughs> yes That's the important. Colin Firth would love uh, that story. I know. Why didn't they put that in? They should have put that in the. um, uh, Jeffrey Rush could have played Chifley as well, being Australian. So he loses Tom in 1949, very similar to Atlee's loss, I suppose, in 1951. Well, he wanted to nationalise the banks, and that was too a step too far.
1: Yes, and uh, by this point, Robert Menzies is back at the head of um yeah. you know the the conservative the the, the right the liberal
0: party yeah
1: uh, well i don't think it is quite the is liberal it not party yet pa- no yes. it's because it's all rather confusing it's i think still the united Li-
0: australia party yeah it's, it's becoming
1: become the liberal, the liberal party. party um and so he he does the kind of anti-communism stuff he plays that very hard um yeah. and and so chifley loses the election
0: um and he's dead within a couple of years so he dies um, tom during the dinner that they're having to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Federation of Australia. yeah, Yeah. And um, Menzies announces, his rival announces his death. In very moving terms. He says, Um, I've I've printed it out. Very exciting. I won't do it. And I don't have to do an Australian accent because Menzies didn't have a very Australian accent. He said... uh, It's my very sorrowful duty during this celebration tonight, (laughs) a tiny bit of one, to tell you that Mr. Chifley has died. I don't want to try to talk about him now because although we're political opponents, he was a friend of mine and of yours and a fine Australian. A mate. Yeah. So that's that's sort of mateship, isn't it? Yeah. Um, You know, we're all kind of great Australians together. And I think that's actually one of the nice things about Australian politics is um, they love being Australian. Yeah. I mean, everybody's yeah. always saying how great it is to be Australian. Deep yeah. down, we're yeah. all Australians, anyway. So um, that's the end of Chifley. He's dead. He's gone to top spot. He's, he's, the- he might have had an affair with the secretary. Well, she was with him yeah. in the hotel, Phyllis. and one of his biographers later said that he might have had an affair with her sister as well. I know, <laughs> but the but the, everybody's <laughs> the <old> family, <laughs> everybody's family denied that very yeah. vociferously. Don't they? So, so people who've listened to our previous podcasts about. Sort of presidents and so on, chancellors. So the German one was notable for the behaviour of Gerhard Schroeder, and uh, the French one for the bad behaviour of all of them. But the Australian <laughs> one is the, the, such bad behaviour as, as there is, and there will be some bad behaviour to come. It's it's much more. It's yeah. It's small There's yeah. no eating of, of precious yeah. birds or that, Valerie Giscard yeah. de Stang. He wouldn't stand a chance. Well, in oddly, Australian I mean,
1: politics. you d- tend to think of Australia as particularly religious country, but the the kind of the the they all were from church going. Yeah, that was very and, keen. And when, and when they're not church going, they're, they're kind of priggish, they're priggishly not church going. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that must be. They're the either people for of it.
0: faith or they're people who very, very vigorously abjured their faith, aren't they? Yes, and so essentially are still people of faith. Yes. So anyway, Menzies has come back. And Menzies, what I found absolutely fascinating about Menzies is Menzies comes back and in 1942, he'd given a speech about the forgotten people. Did you see this, Tom? No. Um, So he said in this speech, I do not believe that the real life of this nation is to be found either in great luxury hotels and the petty gossip of so-called fashionable suburbs or in the officialdom of the organized masses. It is to be found in the homes of people who are nameless and unadvertised and who, whatever their individual religious conviction or dogma, see in their children their greatest contribution to the immortality of their race. And this struck a – this was his great speech on the sort of forgotten Australians. And it struck a massive chord with kind of suburban, I guess, middle-class voters. And this is, what is it, almost 30 years before Richard Nixon gives his silent majority speech Mm. and coins the phrase the silent majority. And Menzies is doing it in the 1940s, this classic kind of centre-right appeal. So so again, I think this – and this is a theme that will quicken in
1: the post-war years – The way in which actually Australia kind of blazes trails for both British and American politics. Yeah. And you see this happening again and again and again. It's almost like it's a kind of American and British politicians look at it as a kind of laboratory where things are being tested out. I completely Um, agree. And that's a kind of, you know, intriguing uh, example. Because
0: it's a, um, you know, it's a very suburban society. Australia, isn't it? Becoming a very suburban society in the mid-century in sort of 50s, 60s. Um, and it's sort of anticipating the, the suburban politics that you'll see, let's say Margaret Thatcher, that she does with her appeal to kind of home ownership and stuff.
1: Yeah, um, and I think I think um, that rather like, uh, you know, hippies see Nixon as the embodiment of everything that they hate, um, you know, oppressive, stuffy, parochial. Um, people... people Young intellectuals in in Australia see Menzies in similar way. Yeah. So, and that's why you know all the kind of the big names who come to England, so Clive James and Jermaine Greer and Barry Humphreys, essentially what they're fleeing is is Menzies, yeah, and everything that he embodies. Yeah. The irony, being of course, is that you know they're they're fleeing the Anglophile Menzies to come
0: to London. Yeah, that's right. Well, they're fleeing the sort of the the. The, the Australian Affluent Society to some extent, aren't they? But a kind of that, complacent, conservative, affluent society.
1: Yeah, and a kind of um, censoriousness. So there was a kind of famous case where um, a, a, a cafe named the Moulin Rouge um, in Sydney was fined for having um, on the cafe wall a copy of Toulouse-Lautrec's Woman Adjusting Her Stocking. And this was condemned that's, that's, as obscene. That's so that, I mean that's why Jane Greer would obviously you know, put yeah. up with that.
0: Um, that's sort of so famously Jean Shrimpton pioneered was said to have pioneered the miniskirt. I think that's actually an exaggeration. At Melbourne, a Melbourne racecourse, and the matrons of Melbourne were horrified that she had a that she had a mini dress. I think it actually was that went above her that that stopped at the knee, and you could see the bottom of her legs. Goodness. So there is a sort of conservatism. Str- yeah. I mean, as well as it's egalitarian and it has very strong trade unions yeah. and a welfare state, there is a kind of moral conservatism.
1: Yes, and um, the uh, I think the strength of that that left wing tradition is what makes the the anti Marxist tradition correspondingly strong, and that's right. what Menzies plugs into, and he's yes. always invoking it. And so there's a famous uh, so he he's up for re election in 1954, and what crash lands into the course of that election, which it looks like Menzies is going to lose, is probably Australia's most famous spy scandal, the Petrov affair. It's a great affair,
0: this. If you're going to yeah, have a, fabulous a spy affair. scandal, this is, this is yes.
1: the one. So um, Petrov, was, he was Vladimir Petrov. He was a KGB officer, um, and he's hanging out in uh, in Sydney. And he decides that, you know, <laughs> Australia is a lot nicer than uh moscow
0: yeah and why so didn't he, they all the defect yeah the, well, he that's...
1: decides to jump ship so he says <laughs> i no longer believe in communism since i have seen the australian way of living but he doesn't tell his wife and that's, once he's defected <laughs> the uh kind of soviet goons bundle her onto a plane uh in the full view of australian cameras and and they're all appalled by this and this plane has to refuel at darwin and Australian Secret Service agents managed to get her off the plane. Um, And obviously this is, you know, damsel in distress, evil communists. It's brilliant. And it enables Menzies to overcome the odds and to win the election. And so there's been this grumbling conspiracy theory that Menzies timed the announcement of uh, Petrov's defection to sway the election. And And maybe he did. I mean, well, I, 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 I... who knows? But He'd I gather. would be if he didn't. I, well, I gather from, uh, from my extensive research into this yes. that it, the consensus is, is that, that it wasn't Menzies who did this, but it's possible that the Australian Secret Service oh, right. ensured that uh, the, the timing would be right.
0: The, um, um, the, quite the big question, though, Tom, is what did Vladimir Petrov think? I mean, he might not have told his wife. I know a people think thinking he didn't tell his wife because she, he couldn't afford that she would tell somebody or she would persuade him out of it or didn't want to implicate her. But, I mean, he might have been gutted when the Australians pitched up and said, we've got your wife, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he might well have been. I don't know. <laughs> who knows? Again, if there, if there, are, if
1: there are experts yeah. in the Petrov affair who can tell us how Petrov and his wife got on after, after <laughs> the defection, I'd be very interested to know about that. But basically – Uh, This has quite a knock-on effect because essentially it bakes in anti-communism as a a key part of Menzies' um, appeal to to, to the the people who voted for him. And so therefore, he's very, very keen to play the anti-communist card. And with Vietnam starting to kind of bubble up uh, to the north of Australia – this is why Menzies essentially signs Australia up to the Vietnam War. And in fact, he's so keen to do it that he fabricates an invitation from the South Vietnamese government asking for Australian troops. They never did this. He well, made I mean, it
0: the, up. The, the Australians, are, if you believe in the domino theory, which so many people did in the 1950s and 60s, which is that one state after another would fall to communism. Um, and as one went, then its next its neighbor would would be the next in line. I mean, the last dominoes are Australia and New Zealand. And there must yeah. have been an awful lot. Of, there were people in Australia who were extremely anxious that as they as they look up, as they look to their kind of northwest, yeah, that the the tide of communism, especially if they, as you said at the beginning, if they're already believing that they're living next door to this sort of this great. You yeah, know, yeah. This sort of pestilential, yeah. You know, disease-ridden pit, yeah. as they see. So I'm sure that's Asia. a part
1: of it as well, and I'm sure also it's it's about you know it's following on from Curtin's declaration that they're now going to look to the United States that Australia yeah. is now playing the role to the United States that it had previously played to Britain of of you know mateship, yes, geopolitical mateship, yes. <laughs> signing up to help. Well, so 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 Menzies gets uh, Australia into the Vietnam War. He, uh, but he's, I mean, he. He, he interesting. He is a, he is the guy who starts the dismantling of the white Australia
0: policy. So he starts immigration reform.
1: Yeah, uh, and he's um, I mean I think he's a he's a pretty principled man. Um, mm-hmm. He's very intellectually able. He's 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 not greedy. He's a kind of personally, you know, he's um, he's an
0: upstanding Australian.
1: Yeah, he's an upsta- upstanding
0: Australian. But I mean, if you're an Australian but, sort of, if you're as you say, if you're Jermaine Greer or, or whatever. He's everything you just, you'd hate. You absolutely despise He's everything
1: him. you'd hate. And I think he does have a, a slightly comical strain of uh, Anglophile vanity. So when he um, he steps down in, uh, in 1966, he, he succeeds Churchill as warden of the Sink Ports. You know, which p- people who listened to the um, the episode we did with Alex Preston on um, smuggling on yeah. smuggling, um, this is a kind of medieval consortium of ports in the southeast of England. He's, he's leading the fight and, against smugglers, is he? Yes, he is. <laughs> and there's a tremendous uniform, you know, that involves comical hats and rags like things. Right, yeah, Rex Rex, Rex very Rex Rex Hunt. Rex Hunt. very Rex Hunt. And I, th- I get the And impre- you get the impression that Menzies is never happier than when when he's dressed up as um, in his. Warden of the sink Port. Well, he uniform. he sort
0: of bows out. His last one of his last great sort of public appearances, Tom, could not be more, you know, Anglo-Australian relations, could it? So it's nineteen seventy-seven. Yeah, the centenary ashes, the centenary, the centenary test, test, centenary test in the MCG. Yeah, and he's knighted by the Queen in the in the long room of the MCG, which is the Melbourne Cricket Ground.
1: Yeah, and what a I mean, what a way to get a knighthood you must uh, you must look on that with absolute envy. i really do i really do and he 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 loved old cricket grounds so he's the guy who described lords as the cathedral of cricket um so
0: yeah so in so many ways um he's the man well, you wanted to be <laughs> secretly <laughs> yeah secretly i'd love right. to be warden of the St. Port so to listen, be united by the queen in a in a cricket pavilion so listen we've fallen quite short of where we we're intending to get to with this first podcast because we've only got to 1966 but that's fine because we're yeah we've it, got a lot of we've got a lot of aussie prime ministers to come yeah and they're all good fun so i think we will adjourn now uh for tea as it were yes. and, we will, <laughs> and we will return um uh tom will, will harold holt will be opening the batting yes um, he gets the he, 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 he don't want he, a swimming analogy for harold. yes
1: yes so uh, yes harold Holt will open the innings tomorrow and i, I have to say it gets dismissed quite quickly yeah. and in very very controversial circumstances it's and exciting, leaves behind um a, a frankly quite extraordinary memorial but <laughs> if you want to find out more about that tune in tomorrow good day good day <laughs>